So we're talking about a revival spurring. And the first step is the attention to detail of the scriptures. People were hungry for God's word. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Nehemiah chapter 8. So last week, we um, went through the first seven chapters of Nehemiah. And really, the first seven chapters is what Nehemiah is known for. That's what we think of when we think of the book of Nehemiah. It's about rebuilding the external wall of Jerusalem. It's about rebuilding the defenses, giving people safety and peace. Nehemiah heard that the walls were in distress, that the city was unsafe, that they had opposition from the outside. And he wept over that, and he left his really nice job and place in the palace and went back to Jerusalem and took on the task of rebuilding the wall and bringing people defense. Uh, But the wall has been built. That job has been completed. And as it is with a lot of things, just because something looks good on the outside doesn't mean that the inside has been fixed. So sometimes the outer part looks nice, but the inner is still a little ugly. And that's what we're dealing with now in chapters 8 through 10. The walls are up. People have taken responsibility for the outside of Jerusalem. And they've taken care of the defenses. The temple's been rebuilt. Things look good but the spiritual behavior has started to decay again. And so that's what we're dealing with in chapters 8 through 10. Really, another revival is happening during Nehemiah's ministry. So let's pick it up. We're going to start with the last verse of chapter 7 and move right in. So the last verse of chapter 7 is verse 73. It says, The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people of, of the Nethanim, really the people who took care of the temple, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Now that's important because the work's been done and everyone is back home. And it's also the seventh month, which it's the seventh month on the religious calendar, which is the first month of the cultural calendar, which means it's Rosh Hashanah or the New Year, or Yom Teruah, or the Feast of Trumpets, is up next, and then followed by the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. So 
there's already a sense of newness coming around the corner in the seventh month. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So all the people gather together, and they're unified in what they want. And they ask Ezra to read from the books of the law, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read it from in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. So we're talking about six hours. So if I ever get long-winded, just remember Ezra, or that's how I'll punish you. I'll just go for six hours. So he goes, he goes for six hours before the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. This is important. We're only three verses in, but what we've seen already is there's this newness culturally around the corner. Their new year, their cultural new year is coming, and they're about to celebrate with the Feast of Trumpets. And all the people are unified, and they gather together, and they tell Ezra to read us the scriptures. And they ask for Ezra to read the scriptures. He reads for six hours. They were willing to sit there and listen to the scripture for six hours. And it says they were attentive. So we're talking about a revival spurring. And the first step is the attention to detail of the scriptures. People were hungry for God's word. And that's the first thing we see. Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah. And at his left hand, Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book inside of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and he opened it. All the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So after being attentive to the scriptures, they give respect to the teacher by standing when the book of the law opens, and after hearing what it says, they shout, Amen, Amen, meaning we agree. We agree. It means that's what amen means. It's, to, it's that you agree with what's been said. It's, that's why sometimes you hear it shouted in a, you know, kind of a fun church service. Like, amen, because they're like, yeah, that's right. I agree. And so that's what the people are doing. But as they're agreeing, they get humble and they bow their heads and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. But not only do they bow their heads and put their faces to the ground in humility, they lift up their hands towards heaven. That is a worshipful stance scripturally. And this is an area where you see that happening. People lift their hands up out of worship to God. So verse 7. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hadijah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, 
and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So it wasn't just reading through the scriptures. It wasn't just being taught what you would have normally seasonally been taught. It was actually expounding on what they are and making them, making the scriptures make sense to the people. This is where my philosophy is born out of teaching. I want to help people actually understand what's in this book and help it make sense to them and become tangible. It's the name of our church, Come to Life. We want to make the Bible come to life and make sense and be tangible to you. Um, and that's what was happening here. And that, so it's not just the scriptures themselves, but the scriptures making sense and becoming real to the people that's spurring revival. Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So now you see Nehemiah. Now Nehemiah has just been mentioned finally in this chapter. Because the main thing he did was rebuild the wall, but he took a political position to lead Jerusalem instead of his place in the palace. And what he's doing is allowing this revival to happen. He's doing his part. Now, Ezra is the teacher, and Ezra is the teacher and the scribe, but Nehemiah has already gathered the people together and bonded them together through physical labor. So the point is, whatever gifting you have that unites the church for the purpose of doing God's work is useful. It's not always the teacher. It can be the carpenter. It can be someone who's really good at administrative duty, which is another thing Nehemiah did. And so whatever gifting you have that helps unite the people for the goals that the church has or for the ministry, that is good. And it helps bring about revival. We see Nehemiah using his gifts. He's not standing up teaching the people the law and teaching the people scripture, but he is uniting them with his gifts. And that helps revival. But as a leader, he stands with Ezra and says, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So he helps encourage the people as a leader. And it's also interesting that upon hearing this and understanding the words of the law, the people wept. They were actually heartbroken over the distance from living a godly life to what the scriptures say. The way they were living from what the scriptures say. And they were heartbroken over it. And that brings repentance. You have to know what you have, you have to know what to be repentant for to be repentant. <laughs> and when they knew, when it became clear to them, they knew the gap that existed between them and God, and they turned their hearts towards him. So then he said to him, to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. So revival and getting to see God and his word and things make sense is not a somber event. It's a joyous event. And though it might bring heartache to recognize the distance between you and God, turning your heart towards him should bring joy. 
because your relationship with him is restored and you're in the presence of goodness. And so that brings joy. And the leaders, Nehemiah, Ezra, and the leaders and the Levites tell the people to be joyful and to celebrate. And so a revival, the next step is also that it's a joyful occasion. So if you're bringing scripture and you're teaching it and you're making it make sense to people and you have to be confronted with the reality of how we've lived compared to God's word, when you turn your heart to him, it's a joyous occasion. And so to celebrate and to have fun. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests, the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. Now that's important. It seems like it's just kind of a flippant sentence. But the truth is, they didn't just hear it once. They went back to continually hear the word. It's not a one-time thing. I've heard the truth, and now I can move forward. It's continually digging into the scriptures daily. And these people went back the second day to hear Ezra again. It wasn't just the first day. It was a practice and a habit, not a one-time occasion. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle uh, branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from their captivity made booths and sat under the booths. Since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until the day the children of Israel had not done so, and there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So what is happening in this moment is every day they're reading from the book of the law, and the people are actually following through on the duties of the feast. They're building the booths, and they're celebrating the remembrance, because the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, is... You sleep outside under a tent structure with an open roof so you can see the stars, and it's to remind them of their wandering in the desert when God rescued them from Egypt and was bringing them to the promised land. Now that they're there, it's to remember that God saved them from their captivity. And they've been brought back from Babylon, so he's done it again. <laughs> and Israel's been reformed, and they're remembering this. But the interesting part about this is that every seven years, they were also supposed to have a teaching like this in their culture, but they did not do that. Since Joshua brought the people in from the promised land, they haven't been doing this. So no wonder these people continually struggled with idolatry and false worship and false gods because they haven't been giving their hearts over to the hearing of the scripture like they're supposed to. But now they are. And they're doing it fervently and, more importantly, with gladness. They're doing it with joy, not out of duty, but out of celebration because they're falling in love with God again. <clears throat> Chapter 9. Now, I'm pretty sure, I'm going to say this on the record, I'm pretty sure Chapter 9 of Nehemiah is the longest prayer 
in Scripture. So we're going to read it. All right. Now, before I do, that's the other part of revival. You can kind of go one way or the other. You can get stuck on Scripture and get a whole lot of head knowledge and be really theologically sound. But if your heart isn't softened with prayer, sometimes you miss out on some of the goodness and the emotional part and the spiritual part of God. Now, you can be focused on prayer and be really spiritual and have movements and feelings, but if you're not theologically sound and you're missing the knowledge, sometimes you can get into some goofy areas. And so to have that balance and to be both focused on Scripture and its truth and the practices within it, including prayer, is important for revival. And this is serious, because not only have they read the book of the law for eight straight days, they're also praying, and this is the longest prayer recorded in Scripture. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads, meaning they're showing humility. Then those of the Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, and for another-fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So they spent an equal amount of time in worship and prayer as they did in Scripture. And they also spent time confessing their sin and turning their hearts back to God. All important steps. Now, there's a bunch of names listed and who participated in that, and I've already pronounced enough. So we're going to skip down to the second half of verse 5 uh, and get into the prayer. Stand up. And bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and everything in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites. To give it to his descendants, you have performed your words and your righteousness. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. You knew that they acted proudly against them, so you made a name for yourself as it is this day, and you divided the sea before them. So they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Now before we keep going, I want to make note of a couple of things. First, when Jesus taught us how to pray, the first thing he said was, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's interesting that the beginning of this prayer also recognizes God and his greatness. It follows the same pattern. But it also use, utilizes the stories from Scripture to proclaim how great God is. And so it shows that they care about God's word as they're speaking to him. And so that might be something just for you to think about in your prayer life. Are you starting off with recognizing who God is and how great he is? And are you remembering how great he is? Whether that's stories in your own life and what he's done for you, or the stories from Scripture that have made a difference in your life. Because that's what they're doing here. They're recounting the history 
of their people, which is Scripture. And using that as part of the proclamation for how great God is as they open up at this prayer. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws. By the hand of Moses, your servant, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them the water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go and to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. And now they confess their sin, which is also a part of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And they're confessing their sin first. They're humbling themselves and what they've done before God before they get on to anything else. So they hardened uh, hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks. And in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that you that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations, yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from the day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Does that not also sound like give us this day our daily bread? Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into the hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods. Cisterns already dug vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance, and they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in great goodness. And so after talking about needs, now they're talking about extra blessing. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them, to turn them to yourself, and they worked great provocations. Therefore, you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them, and in the time of their trouble, when they cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Does that also sound a little bit like the Lord's Prayer? Right? Um, Deliver us not into, tempt or not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hands of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Yet, when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and testified against them 
that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets. Yet you would not listen, that they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the prophets of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us. You have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies, with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom, or in the many good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants, today. And the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are, servants in it. And it yields much to the kings. It yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Although Also they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all of this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders and Levites and our priests seal it. So that ends with, you have taken care of us, but there's still this burden. And so instead of complaining that you don't alleviate the burden, and wishing you would do so, like the Israelites had done in the past, right? That's the entire book of the Judges. Uh, some foreign intruder comes in, they feel oppressed, and they go, God, take care of them. God raises up a judge, takes care of it, and then as soon as they're free from the burden of their oppressors, they go right back to sinning. Instead of complaining this time about the foreign oppressors and asking God to take care of it, instead they commit themselves to God. This is what they should have been doing the whole time. This is real revival. Not just asking for God to take care of a problem, but just to commit to him regardless of what they face. And that's how that prayer ends. And it says, Now those who place their seal on the document were, and everyone who signed it is listed through the first 27 verses. Um, you can read all those names. We're going to go to verse 28 for time's sake. Now the rest of the people the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who separated themselves from the people of the lands of the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. These joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. So what they've done is they've put themselves under the law. They've pitted themselves against it and said, we are going to follow your law and we're going to follow God. Now, this commitment is really good, but you can also see how it deteriorates over time as we get to the New Testament, because by that time, they've become extremely legalistic because they don't want to let God down. They put up all of these different guardrails around the law and all these extra burdens on the people to keep the law. 
by creating extra rules for them to follow, and it ends up failing. Um, but thank the Lord, we have Jesus. Now, verse 30, we would not give up our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. So now what they're saying is, okay, we're finally going to follow through on not having relationships with foreigners like you've told us not to, which means they're really going to preserve the lineage of Israel, which is important because the lineage of the Messiah comes from Israel. But even more importantly, or I should say more notably, not necessarily more importantly, is that they're making a proclamation to actually keep the Sabbath for the land, meaning every seven years they're going to let the land rest and just gather twice as much at the end of the sixth year um, because they had just been exiled for 70 years because the 490 years prior in Israel before they got kicked out, they didn't keep the Sabbath and they got kicked out for the amount of years that they didn't keep the Sabbath years agriculturally. So every seven years, they just kept growing. And 490 years, that equals 70 years. That's how long they were kicked out into Babylon. And now they're saying, we're not going to do that again. <laughs> so please keep us here. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offerings of the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for the work of the house of our God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses at the appointed times, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. So now they're creating a schedule for the priesthood to serve at the temple. Um, and they're setting aside part of their own wealth to be utilized for worship. So they're basically saying we're committing not just our spiritual life and making sure that we're keeping the law, we're actually giving up of our treasure as well to be utilized for worship. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all uh, of all the fruit of all the trees year by year to the house of the Lord, to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough, of our offerings, the fruit from all the kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all of our farming communities. And the priests... The descendants of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms, to the storehouses. For the children of Israel and all the children of Levi shall bring the offering to the grain of the new wine and the oil, to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. So basically saying, we're going to commit to our treasure to go to God. Now the interesting part of this, I think, is they're committing the first fruits. So they're saying the best of our land, the first of our harvest, the first of our wages, that's what we're giving. We're giving God's best. And that, to me, translates back to Cain and Abel. Now, Abel gave 
the fruits of his labor. He gave the best of his flocks as a sacrifice to God. And Cain gave what was left of his agriculture. And so the heart of Abel was to give God my best. The heart of Cain was to give to God so that it looks like I gave. <laughs> um, and so they're saying, we're going to give of our best. We're going to give of our best of what we have. And that is appropriate worship to God. It's not giving him what's left over. It's giving to him first. So that's what they're committing to. Um, the other part of this is that they mentioned they were going to bring their firstborn. Well, that's written in the law, but they're committing to it. And this actually we see in the Gospel of Luke. We see Jesus go to the temple as Mary brings Jesus to the temple because Jesus is the firstborn of Mary. And so she brings Jesus to the temple. And because of that, we get this amazing story where there's two people in the temple who proclaim that he's the Messiah because of prophetic stuff that's happened in their life. Um, and one, you know, one guy says, uh, you know, God told me I wouldn't pass until I saw the Messiah. And when he holds Jesus or when he sees Jesus, he's happy to go home now because he's seen the Messiah. He's fulfilled that prophecy. And so because this was written and this was committed to by the Jews, we see off into the future that story of Jesus. And I just think that that's really powerful. And so it's a long-lasting thing that happens when you commit yourself to Scripture, not just to Scripture, but to understanding it. And then you spend the same amount of time understanding Scripture as you do the other spiritual practices, particularly prayer. And then you also have joy in those things because of the goodness of God. And that is infectious, and that's what spurs revival. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the people in the story. Thank you for those who are willing to fulfill their roles. Thank you for the homeowners who are willing to stand outside their homes and rebuild their portion of the wall and take responsibility for their community. Thank you for Nehemiah, who is an administrator, who gathered them all together to do the work and to lead. Thank you for Ezra, who is a spiritual leader and teacher. Help us each to find our roles in ministry, to unite, to do the work of the church, and to get the gospel known. And help us to spread scripture and to make it come to life. Help us to spend time in prayer for each other and in confession to you. And help us to do it with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.